Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to the episode for the True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, have you ever been captain of the varsity slut team? No. <laughs> no, I've not. Have you been assistant captain? I don't uh, even think I made the team. I contributing <laughs> member. I don't even think I made the cheerleader. team. Cheerleader. <laughs> no. Well, I, you know, maybe a cheerleader. Like, I could, you know, in the background, S. you know. Yes, give me an L. L. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. So this is part two of um, True Detective season one. And that uh, question, well, that's something Marty (laughs) says to his daughter, Audrey, in 2002, when she's 16 and was caught. What was the term they used? Like, sans clothed or with like some fancy way of saying naked. In a in, car in with a car with two boys, two boys who are nineteen and twenty when she's sixteen. Not good, and so just not a good situation all around. I think for uh, everyone involved, everyone right? involved, given the circumstance. But uh, yeah, he says, "What are you, was this always something like? Uh, what is this always your goal? I've been captain of the varsity slut team." So Marty showing, I guess probably like his weakest points. I think in, in this that would kind be an uh, example of him kind of at his lowest. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he this... even hits her. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that's right. He does slap her in the it's face. Not a, I mean, this is a very bad situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I true. Mean, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is part two. In part one, we did a plot rundown of the entire first season of True Detective and talked a little bit about True Detective uh, season one versus the other seasons. And then we did a pretty thorough, <laughs> I would say, at least, I mean, I, I we ran out of things to say in that moment about uh, Rust Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character. So if you are listening to this and are wondering why the ostensible main character and probably most memorable part of True Detective Season 1, we're not really talking about, we actually spent a good two two and a half hours on him already <laughs> so, right. so i would encourage you go back you, and listen to that if you like want. everything else listen to part one before part two i have noticed on a couple of our uh multi-parters uh especially with the fargo part two had for a while like more downloads than part one <laughs> so i was like wait a minute <laughs> who's, who's doing this yeah it's, it's just kind of funny i think in this episode we're gonna talk about marty the other main character but not quite as important i would say but pretty close and yeah, then, he's like a, a junior main character. Yeah. And then we're going to talk about Maggie, the wife of Marty, and then the rest of the characters. So this is going to be kind of like everything else other than Cole <laughs> episode. Right. So yeah, if you want a plot run down, listen to the first one. And again, like we said in the first one, please watch this. <laughs> for, for some reason you haven't yet. This show is so good and it's worth your time. It's only eight episodes. Uh, although I feel like it was... 
so talked about when it came out. Hey, like it was really popular. It was when big, it came yeah. Out in like, 2014, it was bigger than The Wire ever was. I think in terms of people talking about it. Well, it came out at a time when it was maybe more accessible. Yeah. Than The Wire, and as always, if you like our podcast, if you feel so inclined, let your friends know. You can give us a rating or a review on uh, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That's a really good way to help us grow the show. We have a Facebook page, Really True Fiction. You can search, and that's a, I guess it's a way to contact us or also to be kept abreast of new uh, notifications or communications. And then also we have an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com, uh, and we love to hear from everyone. And um, if you have any requests even, please let us know. And I mean, even we would take, um, we're, we're hoping to eventually in the not too distant future expand into having, start having guests on the show. So if, you th- if you're interested in being a guest on Really True Fiction and you have a story that you really love and think would be uh, flush with what we're trying to do here, let us know and we'll, we'll make that work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so today, part two, True Detective, Marty Hart, Woody Harrelson. I think he's really funny. Like, I actually love his sense of humor and his kind of delivery. I think he's got great delivery with Cole. He's like the perfect character to be up against Cole. I yeah, like, he's not trying to prove that he's better or smarter than Cole, but he's just like, I'm more normal than you. And, like, people like me more than they like yeah. you. Yeah. He isn't, he isn't uh, insecure about Cole being smarter than him. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he kind of does no what his skill set is and he admires ex- the excellence in Cole mm-hmm. but he's not like intimidated by Yeah, it. exactly. Um so do you want to start with his strengths or his weaknesses? Where would you like to go first? Let's start with his weaknesses. Okay. And then we can, you know, kind of end <laughs> on a nicer note than just kind of lambasting him. Yeah. Well, in a nutshell, his weakness is his family, I would say, his life outside of work. He's a very consummate professional in his job. He's both kind of like like at work, he's he's both so competent, but knows how to play the political games really well as well. Yeah. So he's a good detective and like a great bureaucrat. Bure- well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I, there almost should be a different word for someone who is good with the politics of their job and and all of those managing all those relationships, but who's still actually really good at maybe the street job. smart. Well, he's definitely, yeah, yeah, like, he's he's still a good detective, so, but... No, but I mean street smart in the, like, he knows how to navigate the world, mm, like, he's yeah. not naive about how things work. Right. Yeah, in the sense that he's good at navigating relationships. Yeah. Like, I think that's what people mean by street biases. smart. Yeah, like, if you want to, at one level, street smart is just knowing how to navigate humanity. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's an element of street smart that is, like, on the streets, <laughs> so, like, right, right. The, the penalties are a little harsher. That is a connotation of that term. But yeah, I think psychologically it's the same thing. But his family, he talks about it a lot too, how he's inattentive. That's that He says that at some point. His great, atten- his great weakness is his inattention. And it is kind of almost heart-wrenching how he just kind of lets it unravel. Like he lets his family life unravel because of inattention. And it's we see it happening well, because it of the way they like structure the narrative. He's kind of... There's that interesting scene where he's explaining to Maggie or he's trying to obfuscate that he's been cheating on her by talking about like that he's almost 40 and that he feels this sense of, you know, inevitability of his death and he's worried and scared. He's trying to like kind of. And sometimes people just change. Yeah. And it's not anybody's fault kind of thing. And yet uh, all of that seems to be to cover up 
what he knows he's doing is wrong. So like my my analysis of the situation is he's more interested in momentary pleasure mm-hmm. than he is in long-term yeah. success. And he's kind of built in this defense mechanism against it, which is really uh, complicated. It's quite a, it's, it's almost an impressive apparatus that he's built up. Because he's kind of made this claim or makes this claim that he had to cheat for mm-hmm. the good of his family. Well, okay, so... I know you and I have talked about this, maybe not a lot, but a little bit. When I talk about uh, like layers of conscious, not consciousness, but layers of conscious about your behavior in the world, right? So I call level one unconscious. You are unself-aware of your behavior and you're just acting, right? And then it's like surprising to you if someone doesn't like what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't even occur to you that your behavior could be hurting someone else, let's say. So level one, Marty, is doing what he's doing and is totally flabbergasted by the fact that it hurts his wife, right? Level two is conscious. You're aware of your behavior. You know how it affects other people. And so you try to change it in such a way that it's not being in someone's face, right? So level two, Marty, would be not cheating on his wife, even if he wanted to, and like not dealing with some of his problems. But like kind of like, it's it's just kind of like, taking all the right normative steps that you're supposed to take, even if it's not what you want. And then what I'm calling level three is like metaconscious, where you're aware of what kind of things would appear that you're unconscious, but you're still choosing to do them because you know that you are in charge of them. Right. And I actually think that that can be a useful thing. I think being metaconscious about your own presence in the world means you can do things that seem like you're not conscious about them or you're unaware of them, but you're doing them on purpose. You can defend them and you're saying, I'm still doing it anyway because it's what I want to do or I think it's important, right? And I think what the problem is with Marty is that he kind of falls into what I would maybe call level 2.5 conscious. Right. Where he's giving all of these otherwise kind of cogent rationalizations for his behavior, right? Like, you know, honestly like what's going on at home i need something outside of it and it's actually what's keeping the balance so like at some level you might say marty is like meta cogitating on the idea that to save his marriage he needs to be unfaithful sexually and that right. actually is, and like and i think he's actually quite sure about that yeah like he seems <laughs> like yeah. He, and and, it, and it's and it's again we talked a lot about last time about how cole is playing by two sets of books but at a high level. I think Marty is too in the way in that a different he, way in a different yeah. way where he is. Okay. It's, it's kind of like how he says, you know, it's like I can easily have only one beer, right? Right. It's like I can easily only cheat a couple times right, or right. only need it a couple times. And yet we see that that isn't the case, right? Why I'm saying it's 2.5 and not three, like level 2.5 and not level three of conscious is that he is actually jealous, Right. He yes. is actually yeah. bothered by what his paramour is doing. He is super angry when, <laughs> that's not even the right way to put it, he is livid when Maggie fucks Rust. Yes. And he is... So there's a lot of, and, you know, of different standards, right? And, like and, he's got different standards for different people. And And because he feels like he's thought so much about his infidelity there's some great scenes especially in the first couple episodes with maggie where it feels like he misses the breadcrumbs she's leaving for him so even though he's 
to him meta-conscious about his own behavior. He's clearly not because he's missing things that to us, the audience are so obvious. Just the way she's talking, the things she let is left unsaid, her tone of voice, like all of these major red alert <laughs> communication mm-hmm. things that anyone mm-hmm. in a functional relationship pays attention to, right? So anyway, that would be my intro into him. Part of why it's so compelling is that some of the time he has a really good grasp on his own behavior. And yet like Rust, his propositions don't match his behavior a lot of the time, which is very realistic for a person, especially a really intelligent person. And there's a lot of, I mean, he seems to kind of post-rationalize a lot, and that's an incredibly realistic portrayal of a person. I think that's what what I like most about this is you could could meet these people. Mm -hmm. These people for sure exist. And like... And the personality that's crafted the character development of Marty is never not believable. Mm-hmm. There's never a moment where you're like, well, this isn't something someone would do. Mm-hmm. Of course people do that. Well, and because he's not wrong about some of the things he's talking about. Like, Rust isn't wrong yeah. about all the things. Like, exactly. When, that scene where he says, look, I, I understand some of this is on. It's it, They're in the bedroom, right? He's talking to Maggie. I think it's the scene before they make love. And... He's saying, like, look, I know some of this on me. I'm approaching 40. But honestly, some of it is just people change over time. And that's kind of like something maybe we need to factor into the equation of why we're a little bit off right now. Right. Maybe there could be something like a problem in our relationship that isn't anyone's fault. <laughs> right. right. And that, it, at one level, you can see that as a um, an excuse. But again, to steel man it, I think that that's, there's some truth in that. I think that that is possible. And again, it can it probably happens mostly through inattention. That might be the part you could hold someone to. But if you just kind of don't interweave your life narratives often enough, yeah, changes are going to happen. And is it anyone's fault? That seems like the wrong way to think about it. Right. right? It, it could be fixed. Like there is still something to do, which is to pay more attention to each other. But I don't know. It's like it's it's an omission as opposed to a commission of a relationship faux pas, right? Yes. Which yes. is harder to that seems like holding a grudge comes in, right? If you don't address it. And then that's like, well, is that healthy? Right. So he's not always wrong, even if he's not right, either. Which is why I think he's again a very compelling character. Yeah. You know? He's super compelling. And I think the other thing that I like is there's no punches pulled on the critiquing a way in which he lives his life, but there's also a lot of reflection on perhaps the good qualities in him, right? Like we see when he watches that video and is disgusted. This is a man who, you know, has slept with women that are a lot younger than him, Yeah. right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. that girl that he meets, he says she's underage. And then what are we, 12 years later? Uh, No, seven. Or seven years later. So she, if, if she was like 16 or 17 in 95. Like early 20s. Yeah, yeah. And this is the, the woman who kind of ruined, or this is the second affair, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the O2 affair. Yeah. And, so he has an affair in 95 and O2 with two different women. And just contextual for the show, he has to basically rebuild his marriage after his first affair in 95. And it seems like he does pretty well. Well, and then he, that's a quote, do you, do you, you know, do you realize you're living in the good times when you're living? Them? Exactly, yeah. Which I think is a he becomes very profound in his reflections on, I guess, what you would call a partially examined life. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, True. Yeah. It's not fully examined 
like Russ would say that he's fully examined sure. his life. Like yeah. there's still some inconsistency. Uh, well, there's Rust, inconsistencies there's, of philosophy. There's, there's inconsist- several scenes where Rust tells Marty yes. he's not thinking enough, <laughs> right? But Rust is kind of worn off on uh, on Marty by the point we get to 2002, and we're struck by uh, his own reflection, or I guess. 2012 when he's being interviewed by the cops 2012 is the yeah so yeah so sorry Russ has already worn off on him on that by that point mm-hmm. he, he's more reflective like he's like you know maybe maybe we don't realize when we're living the good times yeah and I do enjoy actually probably one of my favorite parts of the show is kind of how wise 2012 Marty is yeah well he's also <laughs> like you know you weren't interviewing Rust he was interviewing you yeah right? like, yeah and it just kind of like well so modern Rust or 2012 Rust is still kind of the same I feel like he's not that different from just you know his older way more weathered and yeah exactly like he's physically looks yeah. different but the way he talks is not too different and yet 2012 Marty is way more reflective and meditative than 95 or 02 Marty is, hey? Yeah, he's seen some real development. Which is, to me, honestly, a very hopeful message of the show. It's like, well, look, actually, even maybe even by the time you're in your 40s and you haven't grown, you still have opportunity to grow. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Because... Well, at this point, he's in his 50s, right? Well, yeah, but I'm saying like by 2002, I think we're led to believe that he would be in his early 40s. Right. Right? So then another 10 years, he's in his early 50s. So we're getting someone who... It's kind of like better late than never, right? Or or that line from my favorite Jimmy World song, there's still some living left when your prime comes and goes. Yeah. Like, I think that there's this idea out there, which is, you know, take it or leave it, that you kind of like, you need to pr- progress in a particular way, as in like your age needs to definitely, like if your age doesn't kind of correspond with some level of maturity, you're just kind of fucked forever, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yet Marty kind of shows that that like if you're not thoughtful by 40, it's sad, but it doesn't mean it's the end of the world. No. Right? Because I actually, I find modern Marty very compelling. Well, and I think this is exciting news for everyone and something that I recently <laughs> only discovered, right? Like, I think I, I, I was under just this weird cultural impression that after your 20s, life is kind of over. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited by the realization that that's not even remotely the case and there's yeah more of your life to live after than before and frankly fuck things get way easier mm-hmm. like you, you sort things out and you kind of know yourself pretty well at that point mm-hmm. maybe and yeah I, I, I guess i'm just agreeing with you but yeah but it's i think it's it's pretty cool i could say for myself to mm-hmm. realize the the amount of development that's possible. Well, and I mean, also, I, I kind of just, I'm sure you've heard the expression. It's not even an expression. It's just kind of like a, a almost like cultural lament of like, I just didn't think my life would be like this. Yeah. Right? Like that's a pretty common refrain I've heard from lots of people. Not not as much quite my age yet, but people like that generation or half generation older than me, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what, that's the kind of, default setting that uh marty is in in the first two like the 95 and the 02 marty he's still kind of in this like i and it's funny with him because he's got on the outside like the kind of classic american life wife two kids good job right yeah and yet 
he's not satisfied at some level that he can't quite get at. And he does kind of walk around in those two eras with this feel uh, in his personal life in this feel of like, why is my, like, I just, I just didn't think my life would be like this. Right. And I think what's really hopeful in his character is that he actually proves to be his own antidote to that. Part of the modern interview with him and the modern cops is kind of a therapy session for him like we're getting into yeah. him him he's like, talking about how his relationship went yeah like and... he's he's admitting to the fact of his own problems like it was my inattention i just didn't think and he's like i think i just put up these rationalizations that made a lot of sense to me but looking back were actually just more of the excuses and and like the debris that i was putting up to justify things that weren't good for me yeah but i thought were you know, it's like, wow, like, that's pretty impressive and hopeful in the sense that, you know, in your 50s, you could still have like a life changing event. Like you're just not you're not confined to whatever you are. You, you know, you don't it's still possible mm-hmm. to have insights and, and transformation. And it, and it doesn't make you pathetic that it takes you till you're 50. No. Right. Like that's what I'm saying. I feel like and I mean, this is something kind of really pervasive in David Foster Wallace's work that we're going to be talking about in the near future. (laughs) But this kind of idea, like the necessity of certain kinds of achievement in a linear manner, right? Like by this age, you need this promotion. By this age, you need to have this happening in your life. By this age, you own a house. By this age, you have your first kid. There's just kind of an implicit, could be Western, but I think it's probably also partially human of like and it is based in biology in some sense of like life stages of when you can actually physically do stuff in your life yeah yeah but one of the most freeing things for me in my life is realizing that i i don't actually have to have particular boxes ticked off by a particular age yeah that is actually one of the great lies of civilization and culture (laughs) right true like i'm 33 and i don't have a kid and if you had asked 16 year old luke of that possibility i would have shuddered at right. the time right right like, well yeah. well why don't i have a kid at that why age, don't like i'm never going to be able to like have energy to play with them then when they're little right 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 now that's obviously a, a thing to think about but it just takes a lot of pressure off when you i, I think you start to go pursue life more organically and in in your own terms if you don't have like deadlines for life achievements yeah, kind of gnawing I, at you. I I love that, and I think and to me that's a, Marty's great revelation in his conversations in 2012. Yep, and he doesn't seem upset about it, right? It's not like he's sitting there being beating himself up and saying, "Well, everything is complete shit, and I can't believe this." Well, do you, uh, he's got that line in the first episode. I don't hold grudges. That's the shit that leads to cancer. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I love that's that deep wisdom. I yeah, feel. yeah, and. I guess, because uh, I guess we're moving into the things we like about. Well, Marty. yeah, no, we we should really point out, or at least like the things that are his weaknesses in ninety five and O two are very real and very disastrous, and I feel like they're even more disastrous for Marty because he actually has kind of in one way tricked himself to thinking that they wouldn't be issues for him. Like these are things that are issues for other people. Yes, and I I understand it, but I've actually made it in a way that they won't be for me because. I need this outside of my marriage. It will make me a better father. Although, again, it doesn't. Like no, that scene where he's no. supposed to talk with Audrey 
about her drawing like kind of stick figure sex positions in school and then getting caught he's like watching the basketball game over top of her instead of having like a really important conversation with his daughter and his wife and so he's he's basically like i don't know if it's worse but he's i guess it's worse in the sense that he doesn't think he'll be uh, he thinks the things that he's doing are bad for other people, but not for him. And they make it even worse for him because well, he, he, doesn't yeah, he doesn't think they're bad for well, him. Well, he doesn't think through the consequences of his actions. No. This is a big problem. Well, this right? is a big human. <laughs> this is a, yeah. This is human one on one. This happens all the time. Wait, what? There's a consequence for my behavior? <laughs> but like uh, when he treats, um, what's his, the, the first uh, woman? His first affair? Yeah. Uh, the first one's Lisa. So and the when second he treats one is Lisa just like. Yeah horror like he like he owns her like she's some kind of possession and then her response yeah she's not allowed to go date other guys yeah. even though he's married and her response is completely justified she's like you piece of shit like you think you could just have sex with me and use me and own me mm-hmm. and and still have your family and your kids and and like live with this lie well no i'm not gonna let you do that yeah and he's just kind of like shocked and upset by this he's like you and- ruined my family it's like uh yeah, because you weren't treating her like a human. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So the there's a there's a bunch of great scenes where they're hooking up and then they're drunk at a bar and his wife's there, but he still goes and talks to her and then he barges into her room that night and beats up the guy that she's with and she's terrified and angry at the same time. I mean, I guess not as terrified, just just really angry at him. And so then what happens is this Lisa goes and tells Maggie, Marty's wife, about their affair. Like, so the girl, the woman that he's sleeping with, tells his wife that they've been sleeping together. Because of... And uh, because of how how he treats her. Of how he treats her. But what I thought was the funniest part about all that is like, that was um, a situation that hadn't even occurred to Marty that could happen. (laughs) Right? I know. It's just so dumb. Like, Marty's, it's it's almost as if, and this is like, again, at the part Marty 2.5, not Marty 3.0, in terms of how conscious he is about what his behavior is, is that he has, in his mind, taken care of all of the things that can happen or that will happen, and yet, I guess it's like the Donald Rumsfeld uh, unknown unknowns? Right. But it should be a, it should should be be a known, known unknown. Yeah, it should be a known <laughs> known or whatever, yeah, right? Like, yeah, like, well, yeah, if you piss off the person, she might go tell your wife. That seems like a very plausible causal connection. And you and you have put yourself in this position and you don't deserve anything just, else. He's just like flabbergasted that she would do that, but not angry. Like no. just blown away. Like, what? Why would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I just think that he... I guess I guess what's cool is that in it, because of his I mean I feel like a clinical psychologist would have a field day with someone like Marty because I think he's fascinating psychologically. Right. But what's hopeful in all of that is that even that level of inattention, which he admits is his great struggle, is maybe not overcomable but certainly work onable. Right. Right? And he's clearly worked on it throughout the 10 years after from 02 to 2012, right? Like, Yeah, he, he, he seems to have... I mean, I think he has more kids now, maybe. Mm. Or he's remarried. I don't think so. Or maybe not. But the point is, Rust asked him, when did you stop? Mm-hmm. And he's like, it just kind of... I just kind of... A couple, like... He said, I kept going for like four or five years. And then it was like, why am I doing this? Well, basically, all of the interactions Marty has with Maggie in the flashback years of 95 and... O two are strained or they're off 
out of sync or they're fighting. Yeah. And yet all their interactions in 2012 seem very civil and pleasant and like kind of more grown up. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so it's funny how all of Marty's interactions with people in the 2012 version of Marty are way more intelligent. He's learned from his mistakes. Yeah. And I think, really, <laughs> can you ask anything more of a person? No, I don't think so. You can't, I, I think, I don't think it's fair to ask people never to make a mistake. No. Why th- I'm fascinated by him specifically, though, is that his mistakes are guaranteed even more so because he feels very justified in his belief that he's crafted a particular persona in life that makes those mistakes impossible. Right. <laughs> right? Like, it's his, he's he's got a pretty thorough justification for his infidelity and why he's, like, not unconscious about it is that he knows what it looks like on, from the outside looking in. Like, he knows how Rust interprets it, and he's saying it's not it's not really for you to judge that because I'm actually like, (laughs) you know, rationalizing it. But he, I don't know. He's so articulate in his rationalizations that it feels impossible that he hasn't thought a lot about this already. And yet he's still incorrect. Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's it's kind of funny. It's very weird. Yeah. Because like most cases you think of, I don't know, like maybe part of the stereotype of an infidelity is like kind of just like a, a, a moment of passion or just drunk. Right. And I guess those are things that he falls prey to as well. You don't really get, I I can't think of many cases in like storytelling of a very well thought out infidelity, not like how to make it happen, but like why it's justified. Right. (laughs) Right. Like it's, he, he doesn't really seem that ashamed of it to rust. Right. And it's a pretty ironclad justification to himself where he's like, I'm not ashamed of it because it's actually the thing that's keeping everything going really well in terms of the family and the marriage. Which is, yeah, complete (laughs) BS, but he's he's convinced himself of this. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that's his big negative is obviously his intention. And then I guess we should just ponder a moment or two on how that manifests into the kind of abusive things he does do to people yeah um which include obviously uh breaking into lisa's house when he's drunk in 95 and then the all the o2 stuff where he beats the shit out of the two guys who who slept with his daughter who slept with his daughter in the car and then he slaps his daughter in the face and says she's the captain of the varsity slut team so yeah i don't know like he's he's got capacities for some pretty dark abusive and it all seems to be tied up in his weird cognitive dissonance filled ideas of right and wrong right because he's really mad at maggie for sleeping with rust but he's fine with himself cheating (laughs) yes like okay (laughs) like that's probably one of the most disgusting tendencies that people have and it's also projection right Mm -hmm. like he probably feels guilt himself, and so he's projecting anger and guilt onto them. Yeah, and I mean, interestingly, he was angry when he found out that Maggie slept with somebody else, but she was clinical about it, and so he was livid when he found... Like, she found the person that would hurt the most yeah. for him, for her to sleep with, right? And so, I mean, we'll talk about her a little yeah. bit there in a bit, but yeah, I, of course, he's such a hypocrite. Yeah, and what he learns 
And what we should learn, I would say, as the audience from this kind of scenario is that your brain is way more complicated than your conscious thinking part of your brain can account yeah. for. Yeah. And to approach these things with a little bit more mental humility, I think, than Marty does. Yeah, don't, <laughs> right. don't like eat your own bullshit. He's convinced that he has created the right mental framework to be a ballast and a bulwark against all of the things that he clearly hasn't. Yeah, and I think the, the the hesitation that everyone should have is like when you're so convinced of something, maybe mm-hmm. you should really look into how you like. There's all kinds of things like the golden rules, you know. Mm-hmm. There's there's ways to to kind of check yourself on whether or not these are the this is how you want to live. Yeah, I, I loved. I guess I just I liked Marty's instantiation and in culture here as a kind of really sophisticated and nuanced take on the kind of idea of pride come before a fall, right? So Marty's pride is a lot more interior. He's not like pounding his chest and being an alpha kind of pride, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not even like, he's not even kind of gloating. He's not a gloater. He's not a, I don't know, any other kind of person who, he's not like obviously hubristic in his mannerisms and behavior. But I would call him, I guess, mentally hubristic, right? Like he thinks he knows how to do this in a way that he clearly doesn't and who knows like 2012 marty would have a lot to say to 95 and 02 marty that could potentially save that version of marty a lot of heartache and pain and divorce and family strife there's just no way he handled that situation with his daughter well at all no like he didn't do anything right and like what's that gonna do for your relationship with your daughters yeah. In the future. What do you think is good? Like, and, and here am really, I being a little bit like, <laughs> oh, you did wrong. I know what to do, Marty. So I'm falling into my own trap here. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, somebody's no. got to be holding others accountable. And I think that he, uh, it's because he, he isn't doing damage to them maliciously, but he's doing it out of his own pain. And his own pain is that he's so attached to this idea of himself as a, a man and masculine and, mm. you know, almost owning women which i think is a is the most toxic thing about him mm-hmm. right is yeah is that really he thinks that women kind of owe him something right and he treats them as such like mm-hmm. he owns his wife so russ shouldn't and he owns his mistress so other men shouldn't sleep with his mistress and his daughter s- sexual acts somehow reflect on him well that's actually that's a great insight david because that's actually kind of directly referenced in the show when it's the scene where they go i think it's like the second episode maybe and they go to that trailer brothel yeah the first time they see beth as an underage girl and she knew dora lang or knew something about her they got information and the kind of headmistress i guess or madame yeah (laughs) of the trailer park ladies is pimps too (laughs) yeah 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 well she was she basically said something like the reason i think she's talking about prostitutes in general but it's like the reason that you find this so terrible or unnerving is that you don't own it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She's referencing... You don't own what you think you own. Fragile male sexuality. Yes. Which is... Or fragile male ego, perhaps. Yeah, manifested through the sexual relationship yes. with yeah. with a woman, right? And, and uh, I mean, okay, you and I, no listener needs you and I to expound on the tragedy of in the world and history through fragile male ego no. through sexual no. abuse and I violence. Think, I think that's been <laughs> that's pretty well, well addressed yeah. by... <laughs> Other than, like, slapping his 
Like Marty's abuses aren't criminal exactly, but they're definitely dysfunctional and abusive. Like they are abusive, but they're not physically abusive except when he slaps his daughter and when he beats the shit out of those guys. Yes. And like we mentioned last time, he gets away with that shit because he's a cop. Yeah. Which is, which is... topical. <laughs> <laughs> However, though, and maybe this might be a good time to transition into the good side of Marty, which I feel is actually quite deep and interesting. It's still at that brothel where he's chastising the madame that that girl's underage. So he is looking out for her in some form. Yeah. Right? Like he does he I think he shares Cole and presumably ours, well definitely ours, and kind of like well adjusted people's revulsion for the exploitation of innocence. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and like that's at least a baseline that you can start with to work with a person. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like can yeah. we agree we don't hurt innocent people? And the most innocent of people are children. Yes. So can yes. we if we can if you and I can agree that we don't hurt kids we have at least somewhere to start with common ground that we can work on a problem. Yeah, we have an, an ethical <laughs> right? framework. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, interestingly, that's actually kind of the stuff I would make philosophical distinctions between something like an interlocutor or a, or a rival versus an enemy. I think that there are philosophical distinctions to be made between rival and enemy. I like that. I right? like that, yeah. Uh, a rival is someone who disagrees on what tax rate <laughs> should be happening, and an enemy is someone who has a categorical difference of opinion on how you should live in the world. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you can have different interpretations of best ways to raise young people, and that rival isn't the right word for that, but, but what, by, disagreements. But protecting them. Yeah. Yeah. But your enemy is someone who thinks it's okay to hurt kids. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? The like categorical that. differences. Anyway. But yeah, he's looking out for her. And he does. I mean, he kills Reggie Ledoux because yeah. of his. What he's doing to what, children. What he does to children, right? Like he, that's, well, Marty actually shows that point I'm making. is like, well, you're an enemy. Yeah. And you deserve to die because of this, right? Uh, now, enemy might be a word that's squeamish in our modern culture, but I think it's super useful as a distinction yeah. <laughs> like it yeah. needs to be made i like that distinction because yeah. there's a difference between a bad man and an evil man mm-hmm. a bad man you know is probably probably all of us at some point in our lives where we perhaps or do, lady or lady <laughs> or a bad person yeah <laughs> um is someone who you know acts not in good faith mm-hmm. or doesn't live up to the principles that they espouse or like i i, I think it's fair to say both marty and rust are bad people like in the, at times, yeah. Like like they they have been bad people. That's they, they yeah they have bad behaviors. They've done bad <laughs> behavior, yeah. But but that doesn't dis but that distinguishes them from these other people who are evil mm-hmm. and who who are willing to commit these heinous acts mm-hmm. and hide them and use power right. to protect themselves. That's evil mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe normatively not um, well up to snuff. And we talked about it last time, but that's why. Marty and Cole are the kind of people who can stop the evil people. Yes. Because they have seen the abyss in their own soul, but they've actually tamped it down and been the boss of it. Yeah. Right? And the people who ha- who don't even look for the abysses can't know what to do when they come across one. I love in that. In the real yeah, world, I, I, right? I think that... And, and I, I want us to be clear, there are evil people, right? Mm. Like... I hate this distinction that everything is a result of, you know, n- nature and, you know, 
or sorry, nurture. And like, if we could just fix the, the societal problems, then we're going to be able to fix people. And as if people were just some kind of machine that can be tinkered with to, to get a more desired outcome. Mm. Well, no, there are people, no matter how they're raised, they just, they, they are inherently committed to a destructive power hungry evil view of the world interesting so let's just apply this to the show then so then are you saying that you don't think there could be any environmental differences that would have made reggie a different kind of person well maybe reggie's not the best example but some of these people the the wealthy powerful people participating in these rapes and murders right. of women those or are at evil least people. turning their heads to those it. are evil people and mm. and it doesn't appear to me that their financial or or social circumstances are those of you know poverty and whatever mm-hmm. now i think so like it, some combination of being above the law too rich to get arrested yeah, and and using that power to do some these really disgusting, disgusting things. Right. And and I want I'll take it a step further. I'm not saying that these people didn't have choice ma- matrices that brought them to that point. Right, right. It's not as if as if they were just inevitably destined for to be evil. But I think they chose mm-hmm. to be evil. Yeah, and I think the biggest indicator of someone who's choosing to be evil is someone who actively covers up heinous things, mm-hmm. right? Like as soon as you are you want to do the heinous thing enough that you're going to do it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like you're clearly <laughs> to have a video recorder, press yeah. record and just film it at any point where you could intervene. Uh, that's, you, like, you've made a choice there. And categorically, there's a difference between someone like Marty who is ashamed mm-hmm. he wouldn't be lying about it if he wasn't ashamed right but categorically that lie to protect because of shame mm-hmm. is very different than the lie to protect raw evil yeah the difference is marty's lies are to kind of protect his ego but he knows like he, he the shame that he's hiding from is because he knows that there's something right about the criticism people would have of his behavior. Yeah. Like he's aware of the truth in what they're saying and the people who are lying about the heinous acts of child rape and murder that happen in the show are, they're hiding it because they know it's illegal and they'll go to jail. Yeah. Not because they they're hiding see something they... in a sort of like ethical truth that the people who would criticize their behavior would be giving to them right right yeah and that's a good distinction okay so with marty though i i was um he had a lot of awesome line i I think he was a great cop i really do i thought he was he was the he's he's not quite as talented in the ins and outs like if you think of cops as a bell curve rust is like in the 99.99th percentile of talent and ability. But that's one of the things that that does is it makes it hard for him to like work in a team. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. He's just kind of like so far up. And I don't mean this in an insensitive way, but he's so far along, like let's say the cop talent spectrum that he can't really relate to anyone. Yeah. And Marty is kind of placed in the cop talent spectrum at like, let's say the 95th percentile where he's still really good at actual cop work, but he knows how to get 
people to help him when he needs help. Yes. Right. Right. So he's. I think we've talked. Like he's kind of like the Thomas Huxley. <laughs> right. If if um, Cole is Darwin, Marty's more like Huxley. And the first line that I want to throw out there to talk about this: why Marty is. This is why Marty is so funny. He's so aware of the psychological blind spots of being a cop that it makes it so great that he's not aware of any of them about being a husband or a father. <laughs> it's yeah, it's <laughs> like it's almost he, he's, fascinating how good he is at the one and how Well, poor and he, he kind of talks other. about this, right? He's kind of like, well, you know, that job mm-hmm. is so all-consuming and significant and he's obviously good at it and he cares about it a lot. It's right. kind of his his number one passion. It's interesting cuz both him and Russ, that's the driving force of their lives is is the, that work. But I, I I think he's so good at helping keep Rust like on a on the right kind of path. Cause a couple of times he says something like this. You attach assumption to evidence, you bend the narrative to support it. And my note there's like Amen. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. You you make narrative dictate evidence versus the other way around. Yes. Right? And I mean, we've talked about this a lot before, but I actually think this is one of the greatest tragedies of the human condition. Yeah, is confirmation <laughs> is bias. Confirmation bias. And it's one thing to bend evidence to fit a narrative. It's another thing entirely to just shut out evidence that doesn't go in the way of that narrative and to make it like taboo to even try and find it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. that's when dogma hits. That's when ideology has hit dogma level. It's, I mean, Rust is not at dogma level of his theory of the crime, right? And that's what's kind of great is that Marty is helping him realize, like, look, you want this to be some sort of satanic ritual. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying we don't know that yet. Right. Right? So let's take it as it comes instead of bending our narrative because then we'll miss important clues, which is a great foreshadowing because they do miss an important clue. I think it's the first episode where they find out about the spaghetti man with the green ears. And they don't focus on the whole part, which is like, well, why green ears? Oh, it's probably a leaf. And then they just leave it, which is like the clue that solves it at the end of the yes of yeah. the eighth episode, right? And I just think that that is such a, like, obviously that's an important thing for a cop or a detective to think about, right? Like, yeah, don't let my narrative in my head color my evidence. But I think that's just a great, uh, withholding judgment of a narrative before we have more evidence observing instead of analyzing yeah right mm-hmm. so taking in the information before processing it mm-hmm. I, that is probably one of the best methods of navigating the world because a it's just more enjoyable mm-hmm. than constantly trying like it it's exhausting to try to make every piece of evidence <laughs> fit into like some kind of theory of something the world. you want it to be yeah whereas just it, it's like that chestertonian quote which is one of my favorites is like People spend so much of their time trying to get heaven into their heads when really they should be concentrating on just getting their head into heaven. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the idea, of course, is... It's funny. Like, when you're... Tr- instead of trying to understand complex and mysterious realities, right. maybe just observe. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think why... It's good with Marty, the way he approaches it, because, again, he's just so different here. He's He's in much more... He's showing this psychological humility he doesn't show in his personal life, right? Which is, look, I know we want narratives. So it's not a denial of them that they kind of just creep up. I think the the desire, the pattern-seeking brain is the same kind of idea as the narrative-seeking brain, right? And evolution has bequeathed humans with such a psychology for, we don't really know exactly why, probably some idiosyncratic survival reason that we could never quite totally pin down. But we're st- it's still here. 
And so I guess it's more just kind of like becoming like, again, what I'm saying, level two to level three, conscious to metaconscious about the things that you let creep into, like the, the things that creep into your subconscious and how to deal with them in a way that will yield more truth and justice in the long term upon our reflection. Like this is like so much of life is a battle. I honestly think it's a battle between our conscious and our subconscious brain. Right. And it's just like adding to your toolbox of being able to not be so overly and negatively influenced by your subconscious that you start making what you would maybe call mistakes, right? Like what kind of psychological mistakes do you let happen because you want them to happen? I'm reminded of the X-Files. I want to believe, right? Like I think that that initial desire in that statement is so crucial to understanding how to provide mechanisms around making those kind of mistakes, especially in investigating a crime, right? It really should be the cops who are the best at this. Yes. Or the detectives anyway, right? Like that's actually, like that kind of mental processing is actually the thing that should make them a detective in the first place, I would say. Yeah. But yet I think it's still a useful heuristic for coming to better truth and better justice. Not total truth and total justice, but just better versions of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Marty's really good at that. He, he reminds Cole of a few times of like, you're letting your narrative come in again. Yeah. We don't know that yet, right? We're here following he makes, clues. He makes Rust a better detective. Mm-hmm. He's talented enough to understand the kind of like clouds that Rust is getting into, <laughs> theoretically. And he's like, well, let's, uh, let's bring that back down a bit. And, and then Rust has to be better. So yeah, there's a couple other things about Marty I wanted to bring up before we move on to Maggie. And the first one is his actual line that he says as he's about to beat up those two, well, one's 19, one's 20. So one teenager, one 20-year-old who uh, slept with his daughter. He says the line, a man's game charges a man's price. Now, Marty is in the midst of abusing his police power and being brutal about it. Why this show is so great. I felt a resonance of truth in that statement, even if Marty was doing it in the worst possible way. I do like that statement. I think it's a very profound statement. Obviously, maybe he's using it to rationalize Mm -hmm. uh, bad behavior. But yeah, like the real world is a vicious scary terrible place in which a lot of people's souls go to die Mm -hmm. there's a great quote from kind of like a mystic that i that i like to follow and he said uh and it says be very careful you're living where souls get eaten Mm. yeah right like let's not pretend out that that you know everything is peachy Mm -hmm. right there are bad things bad people and the weak die Right. And I right. mean, in this specific scenario, there's no indication in the show that it wasn't consensual. But young people engaging in sexual acts like that are not quite sure how it's going to affect them no. <laughs> psychologically. And who knows down the road what it would make Audrey, his daughter, feel or think or them either. Right. Or like their interpretation of what is positive sexual behavior in their lives. And obviously that element of life is so crucial and important. And even like, forget the psychological, like it seems like they broke the law and a pretty serious law in Louisiana 
so they're looking at some serious jail time <laughs> if well essentially they <laughs> marty beating them up was their punishment yeah. instead of them going to jail for stat rape which who knows maybe in the objective realm it's better for them to get beat up than to right but right. like again if you if putting the best potential view on it it's kind of like about how crucial it is to think very deeply about your big decisions and the things that might feel like small decisions but are actually big decisions mm-hmm. right i think that that's one of the motifs of this show is to to not walk into anything blithely and kind of like unreflected because a man's game charges a man's price i would put it an adult's game charges an adult price and i think that partly because we're in a culture that's obsessed with youth and we're in a culture that hasn't had a lot of cultural struggle or strife for a long time that kind of gets overlooked yeah we we we're comfortable right Mm -hmm. and we and we kind of the state safety nets there for it used to be that having a kid was a very economically dangerous thing to do right and there were a lot of cultural norms that were really just down on yeah yeah um, and now you can have a sex you know you there's less consequences which Mm -hmm. is a good thing i think yes yeah it's limiting poverty it's it's limiting child mortality it's Mm -hmm. these things are good things Mm -hmm. but it's maybe separated us a bit from the consequences of our actions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's if if taken in the best context, it's a good reminder that there's more to life than frivolity. Yeah. <laughs> and and that things that we there are there's potential for doing things frivolously that have deep consequences and that's something that's worth being mindful about before we frivolously decide to do something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then just the twin like the the closing of the door on that thought, I just, it's a good, it's in keeping with Marty's character. It's like, yeah, okay, a man's game charges a man price, but the whole point of a really like mature justice system is so that we remove the punishment from the person or the family that is the aggrieved or the wronged because it won't be often proportional or fair and it will just be total retribution and then we end up in feuds yeah and And i guess one of the great ideas of the achievement of a justice system is somehow marrying fairness of justice with the recognition that behavior can really damage things in the world yes and we have to hold people accountable for that right yeah so anyway, that was my thought on that part. I did enjoy actually Marty's lack of decide. Like he's very loyal to Cole, hey, in the modern. Yeah, tw- well, like- especially when people are kind of coming at him and trying to present this mm-hmm. narrative that Cole is some kind of yeah, uh, it's that Cole is actually the evil yeah yeah person. Yeah. Uh, I he mean, doesn't <laughs> he doesn't really believe it? I think like just as a story, it was so obvious that Cole wasn't the bad guy because like that just would not have made any sense no. to any Although, of the character you thought it was i didn't think it, first time i watched it i remember thinking oh is it him i can see why the modern cops thought he should could would consider him a suspect like that made sense in the narrative mm-hmm. it didn't make any sense to me in the meta narrative, which right. is us watching it, right, right, right. Given that all, given all the access we had 
to what actually happens. There just seemed like there was impossible to me Cole was the actual villain if considering all the things we see as the audience that presumably other cops don't know about. Yeah. So anyway, I I love and and Marty also was privy to that, which is probably part of why he just doesn't believe them. Yeah, he's that like Cole There's is no the way. villain yeah. and and that he So I I liked that loyalty actually. Like it was like, okay, I'm going to if I'm going to find out more about this, I'm going to find it out from Cole. And he's even loyal to Cole who who, you know, betrayed him in a way that, you know, most men would no longer be loyal to someone mm-hmm. if they'd done something like that. But he, he doesn't hold grudges, like right. you said. He uh which is I think a really admirable quality. Yeah. He he tries to be objective even about himself. Yeah. Whether he is, succeeds all the time or not is up for debate. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the right motif. And then he also like I I would just reiterate he comes back to help Cole because he realizes that the people that they're trying to catch are beyond the pale ethically. Like, and that's really what makes him do it when he sees the video. Right. Yes. And so I think that that's such a useful way to think about, (laughs) I don't know, maybe building coalitions. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Find ethical people. Uh, uh, Well, yeah, at least like find the foundation that you can both agree on yeah and is there one because imagine what we would think of marty if that video did nothing to his opinion right right? yeah like that's just a different category of person yes so the last little thing i have about marty that i or you know note i made on him was it's in the last episode and there's a few things to maybe talk about here but uh, he's got a line where he says we ain't gonna get them all that's not what kind of world it is, but we got ours. I think there's something here to think about where it's like there's a there's a line in the song by Filter, Take a Picture, from like 20 years ago, where, uh, you know, it's like that, you don't want to take my picture. You remember that right, song? Right, yes, yes. There's a line in that song that says, can everyone agree that no one should be left alone? And the way I interpret that lyric which is in consonance with how I interpret Marty's thing, is that it's a fool's errand to have this kind of like top-down way of keeping, of like balancing out the world. Like that's impossible. The goal should be, like this idea no one should be, can everyone agree that no one should be left alone? It's not like I... I shouldn't go and try and save the whole world, but I should try and like maintain my relationships with you and my sister and my friends and my community and keeping all of them. And then they can kind of do that for their spheres of circles too. And like in this really roundabout way, if everyone behaves like that in life, hopefully everyone has at least somebody. Yeah. Right? Like right. it's just like the tentacles of relationship and friendship can be bounced around. I mean, maybe not right now in COVID, but you know what I mean? Yes, yes. That um just a kind of like awareness of, okay, well this this is my person to go reach out to. Or right. maybe it is this is the this person is, I need to look out for. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in the same way, Marty is noticing like, well, these are our bad guys to get, and we're not gonna get of all of them. But as long as we get ours and then hopefully everybody else who's good can get theirs, that's kind of how the whole system actually works and should work, right? Right. And it'll never get to zero. So it's like two things. You're you're taking care of what you can take care of to improve things, and you're not ever getting Panglossian about it, it's gonna get to zero, right? Yeah. It's not the kind of world it is. And uh, I thought that was some really big wisdom from Marty is like, we did what we could, which is what 
the whole point of trying to do good is in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I, I guess I just also like attaching it to the idea of just kind of human relationships. Maybe this isn't even related, but the thing I would contrast it to is this like kind of the idea of um, the participation award. Like right. everyone gets a green ribbon for being here, the participation trophy. It's kind of like foisting on kindness to people. Right. Right. It's right. like it's like telling the whole class, okay, you have to be nice to this kid. Well, that's not gonna work. No. But if we can find a way to like have a fountainhead or a, a an, an individual person thinking that about and then extending an olive branch to like a new kid or a person or someone who maybe doesn't win trophies. Right. Right? Like that kind of thing. I like that idea as the as I mean, you know, I'm a very grassroots oriented person. Like I understand the desire to not have people be lonely and like to look out for them. So I understand the impulse behind the participation trophy, right? Mm-hmm. But I just don't think it's an effective way to do it. Right. And so then I guess I'm challenging the thoughtful person to be like, oh, okay, now that no one is telling me to go do that who should I reach out to, right, of my own volition? Because do I actually care about people, right? right? So, like, the people who win the... I mean, I remember kids who, when I grew up, weren't particularly good at stuff. I did feel the need to reach out to them and to, like, tell them about the things I think they did do well. And the only time I didn't want to do that is when some authority figure told me I had to. Right, <laughs> right. I like that. And I, and I just think that that expectation of the authority figure is kind of part of the problem. Because then it's not authentic. Right. You don't actually feel any sense of mm-hmm. um, like that, that people care because it's mandated. Yeah. Whereas if people do it out of the goodness of their heart, it means yeah. something. It's yeah, like yeah. If, if someone doesn't have a choice whether or not to love you, that makes their love less in a lot of ways. It makes it feel less special. Mm-hmm. Maybe why we're so att- – like family we know is important and it's kind of at that gut level. We care a lot. Right. But – we kind of are more excited about someone <laughs> choosing to love us. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's uh, friends are the family you choose. <laughs> right. Or, you know, even romance, right? It's like, yeah. well, you know, why why is romance elevated to like almost a divine level in our society? It's right. because there there's an element of it which is, well, it's so special because it's different. Yeah. Well, I mean the most intimate or personal relationships would really hammer home the counterfactual in a humorous way is like imagine how you would react in either position if you're like oh yeah my authority figure told me to love you so that's why i'm here right (laughs) Uh, okay uh, yay (laughs) so you're like that's the point you're not even helping the people you're ostensibly claiming to help no which is uh, i think a modern definition of tragedy yes i'd agree (laughs) there's a lot of that in there too so then just before we move on to Maggie, um, I just had a kind of, I made a note about them working together. There's something so impressive about their work ethic, I found. They went to all the locations they needed to go. They combed through files and files and files. Like Cole going through all those files is how he found out all these people to go talk to, to learn tidbits that helped his theory or gave data to his theory that he could actualize and work on and eventually made him want to go break into Tuttle's house to steal that stuff right and so I've kind of like I I wouldn't say I've coined this term but I have noticed 
that when I get uh, like I uh, not often so sometimes I get complimented for doing a good job on something or like working hard at something and my return is it's just effort right <laughs> right like right. there's nothing special about effort and yet I feel like uh, there almost is now it's like right. when you see someone like working hard at something it's like you you take extra notice and you're like oh wow that's great and I guess it's like more just kind of like for young people, even it's like, if you have a challenge in front of you, if the only thing standing in front of you is effort, you're very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like it's actually lucky to only have the thing stopping you from solving a problem or getting something done is effort. The fact that there aren't maybe like rules or like a nonsense or human interference <laughs> that's yeah. stopping you means if it's just, so it's kind of a heuristic I've developed at work where it's like, oh, you can you do this? Yeah, it's just effort. Like I want to, I guess, almost demystify or make not particularly special the fact that some things take effort. Well, <laughs> I think that's the loving. It's going back to what we've said in previous podcasts about loving the process. Mm. If you're if you're only if you look at someone and see what they've achieved, but you divorce that with from how they got there, you cannot understand that person. Mm. And if you look at a task, most people are overwhelmed by tasks because they think about everything that needs to be done all at once. Right. But really, what needed to be done was just doing Step things. Step one. Do, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. One bite at a time. Right? Like... Do people eat elephants? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but if one was to eat an elephant, do it the same way you do everything else. Yeah, fair. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's just a kind of random passing thought where I was watching and I was like, holy. They might get a lot of kudos on the fact that they solved the case, but the reason they solved the case was effort. Yeah. That was it, that was right? It. There's right. nothing, And there's nothing magical or special about effort. It just takes will, Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I guess what's hopeful about the message is that everyone can have will. Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah. like kind of the whole... That's what it is to be a person a lot of the time is right. to just go do something you want to do. Yeah. And if, if it takes if if all if all you have to get over is an effort hump, then let's <laughs> you might then, say, yeah, then do it. <laughs> then do it. Okay. Uh Maggie, Marty's wife, Maggie Hart. Not a <laughs> very frequent character, but a major plot point. Yeah, very important to the plot. And like she's in it the third most. Right, I guess, but like a uh, distant third most. I guess, except for maybe the other cops, like the the modern cops. But yeah. Anyway, now this is an interesting case because I found what she did to Marty to be very cruel. Well, cruel to Marty and Rust. Yeah, a little bit, but it seems to me the only thing she wanted was for Marty to open up to her. Like all she wanted was to know what was going on in Marty's head. Right. Yeah. And so it just felt like it's an interesting kind of pathway to see a person breaking down and breaking down and being treated unfairly and then to lash out cruelly. Like it's like you really can see the steps that brought her to doing what she did. So then so when when you see the steps, are you like, well, was it justified or not? It's like it's a really hard question in this case, I think. And I got to say, Michelle Monaghan's acting to just so good. Yeah the small facial tics and the kind of like looks that she gives Marty and so much of what she doesn't say 
to convey her sadness and like or like when we know that she knows about the infidelity but marty doesn't know yet so she's just like trapping him i think it's the second one yeah with beth right yeah because she finds the picture on the cell phone Mm -hmm. so i don't know like how did you feel about all of that well i guess there's a few things here i think marty is at fault at primary fault for the dysfunction of the relationship and i actually kind of admire Mm -hmm. her willingness to work on things and to try yeah. And but really what it is is the kind of that oh what a tangled web we weave when first we set out to deceive, right? Yeah. Like because of his willingness to act only in his own self-interest and therefore not take into consideration the feelings and desires of the people that are supposedly supposed to be the most important to him. Mm-hmm. He puts himself in a scenario where he can no longer be open and authentic in his relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And because that is broken, now she doesn't feel connected to him. She feels kind of pushed out. She doesn't, she doesn't no longer has this, the connection that she is longing for with him. And then on top of feeling neglected and rejected to a degree, she also feels betrayed. Mm -hmm. And so her response is an incredibly human response, right? right? It's like, well, I'm going to get back at him in the worst way I can for what she feels was like Mm -hmm. not only one betrayal, but two. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, nope, I mean, revenge is not a, we've talked about this before, for a whole episode. Yeah. But re- revenge is a inc- incredibly human uh emotion. Mm-hmm. And I don't you can't blame someone. Like well you can understand why they did it. Right. And I think that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. But really what causes all of this is the initial selfishness. Yeah. Of Marty. Totally. Yeah. Now I guess the part of Maggie that I would, the part of her decision-making that I would hold accountable is I think it's very, very negative and and nothing is being solved if you are using sex as a weapon. No. Right? Agreed. Which is what she chooses to do. She chooses to use sex as a weapon in the scene and use her sexuality and attractiveness to be the thing that plunges the knife into Marty's heart, right? And it's totally understandable. To me, sex is such its own category of what it does to people that, I don't know, like it, it almost feels, well, Marty was so shitty, so maybe not, but it feels like you gotta be at least mindful of if your punishment is worse than the crime. I don't even know if the sleeping with someone else part of it was like, I'm not going to make a a judgment on that Mm. because obviously it's kind of a quid pro quo kind of thing. The issue was that she, she created collateral damage, which is rust Mm -hmm. and rust and Marty's relationship. She's, she's trying to be just trying to hurt, maximize the pain she causes Marty. Mm -hmm. But in the process, she brings in kind of a, an innocent bystander. Well, and I mean, yeah, no, I mean, we can't say totally innocent because, you know, well, she doesn't rape him. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> right? Like, no. he he still makes his decision. But, again, like, it's just one of those, I guess one of the hardest things to do as a red-blooded male is to say no to a woman. Uh, well, what's that song? Uh, Self-esteem by the offspring. It's like, I know I should say no, 
but it's kind of hard when she's ready to go. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, and clearly Maggie knows that part about male men, nature. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's one of the things she's banking on in going in and basically throwing herself sexually at him. And it's just, I mean, it's an intense scene. It's a really well done scene, really well acted by those two. And I don't mean this as like a moral judgment exactly. It's much more like almost a pragmatic slash problem solving perspective. It's like, this is not what's going to help. It's going to help your emotions for today and maybe for the next week. But Maggie, you're not a bad person. Right. Right. You're a good person. You're the kind of person who, similar to Marty, is going to feel shame about this one day. Right. Yeah. You're using your sexuality loosely to hurt two people. Now, it just so happens that sex is the thing that people feel so deeply. And I think that that's useful to think about. And it's not in the kind of like, thou shalt, thou shalt not, now you're a bad person because you did this. But it's like being mindful of the role that sex plays for people and how it can really mess them up. And that's like, my guess is, and it's part of the sadness of the situation, but my guess is if Maggie could have really thought about it and like really done a deep dive in, what, in how she should handle this problem, she wouldn't have chosen to do what she did. Yeah. Right? Like it felt like a very kind of like flying off the handle. Oh, here's how I can hurt Marty. And sorry, Rust, you got to go down. <laughs> you got to take one for the team here. Yeah. I feel like there's just more wise ways... And I'm not saying it was her fault. I'm not saying the disintegration of the relationship was her fault. It definitely wasn't. Okay. No. I don't want this to be a construed as um blaming the woman kind of thing. It's not. It was Marty's fault. For her own sake and for Rust's sake, I think she could have handled it better. Yeah. In the sense of she could have done what she did the first time, which would have been to leave him and for good this time, right? You don't get a third chance mm-hmm. kind of thing. And yet the it's it's I guess it's just a great example of the pull of the emotional cathartic win over someone, right? It just doesn't feel the same to break up with someone as it does to shove it back in their face. Yeah, what with an infidelity. Yeah. Right. But again, this is why I'm saying for Maggie, I think it would have I my guess is it just wouldn't have been easier for her in the long run. Right. Right. So that's all I mean about it. And the more broad point is like, I just don't think sex as a weapon will ever end well. No. Emotionally or any other way for people, right? So yeah. that's why that scene was so awesome in the show. Like, not just because I think Michelle Monaghan is gorgeous. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like because her, it's but. just very well done. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, it's very well done in the narrative. And it's like, those kind of scenes would be so hard to act, I feel. Like, oh God. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, And they did such a good job in that. It was so impressive, I thought. And then just like tangentially related to that, because this is something that Cole says about this scenario, I think. There's no such thing as forgiveness. People just have short memories, like the forgive and forget. And we've talked about this before, but like how the forget part is actually just as important as the forgive part. Yes, because if you're constantly holding on to it, are you really forgiving? And we don't have to... And, and Marty actually references that when he says he doesn't hold grudges. That's the shit that leads to cancer, right? Now, again, we've and we've talked about this before. This is a this is a major part of human psychology that I think 
social media has had a massive unintended consequence and has so fucked with. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, because of the internet and social media and like things just staying around for a decade, if we don't want to forget something, we don't have to. No, and it's there. Yeah, right. it's always there. <laughs> like if you're scrolling through, you'll just be reminded of some past thing. Yeah, and so like for the many different ways that I think social media is messing with people, this is a big one. Yeah. Right? And something that I think we might actually have to consciously start making different norms around. Being like, well, what does forgiveness mean in a world where we don't forget about people's behavior? Yeah. What does to forgive someone count? And I'm like, I'm not the first to talk about this. I've like Sam Harris has spent several podcasts on like, well, what what counts as an apology now? Right? Like what is the kind of apology that people have to give for their behavior to not be canceled? Yeah. Right? Or is the plan to just cancel everyone based on something <laughs> no, that they yeah, could have no said it? Any, like, imagine it, imagine the This is what's so negative I feel about a lot of social media, and especially Twitter, is that it's siloing an entire person into their worst, the worst thing they've ever said, right? Yeah. Would you want to trust this person? It was like, that's such a impoverished view on a person. It's, and, yeah, and, it's horribly narrow. Yeah. And I think part of the psychology of forgiveness involves kind of like the tacit knowledge that we do have to forget this as well because, in fact, this person is not in totality this one horrible thing they said. Yeah. Right? And so, I don't know. I mean, that's... We could just get angry about that but i feel like that's such a deep insight i think that there's a massively deep insight into the psychology of forgiveness is that it's not just the intentional forgiving but it's the passive forgetting and if we can't passively forget things anymore because of the way our media social media and media and technology works we need to figure something else out otherwise we're going to drive ourselves crazy because if our brains evolved over millions of years in a particular way and then in a 20-year span they're in a completely different direction we're going to lose our minds yeah like it doesn't work like that you can't change millions of years of evolution in 20 years for overtly moralized reasons no no anyway (laughs) do you have any other thoughts on her character or her presence in the show i mean i thought she was a good mom. Well, well, we could talk about a lot of different things. Uh, uh, she was a good parent. Yeah, and I then, thought. And you look at uh, her relationship with her mom, and it's really seemingly very negative. And there's kind mm. of like a, you know, men are just that way. Her mom is kind of saying, and like, right. you need to tell me about it. And right. Like, I don't want to be your oh, drama. I forgot about I'm all that soap part. Opera. Like, there's a really so interesting. She, so she ingested a lot of the like, in, or internalized a lot of like the bad behavior from men as just being kind of the way that they are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, but she's kind of rebelling against that. She's saying that that shouldn't be how we view these things, but that would take a, I mean, we could go on about this show for mm-hmm. ever, but I don't think, I mean, that insight is probably better articulated in other works that we might do. Right. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That kind of moves us into our villains. Not a lot to talk about them because they're not actually on screen very much, but I think there's some interesting things. So I only have one note about Reggie, Reggie Ledoux, who's only in the show like for a few minutes, and yet he has one of the most memorable lines in it where he says, he'll do this again. Time is a flat circle. Which he does seem to like ingest. Like he's like, is that Nietzsche? Mm-hmm, yeah, or uh, cut out that Nietzsche shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now the only kind of thing that I thought was funny about this is that Reggie is involved with this kind of like ancient pagan voodoo cult, 
it's just funny to think of them as being extremely inspired by Nietzsche. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, that feels more like a maybe Reggie <laughs> individualized right, right. thing yeah. as opposed yeah. to, um, especially later we see Errol, the actual villain, and he doesn't, I mean, he seems smart, but he seems kind of kooky. It doesn't seem, but it also, I feel like this is another good example of bad people using a particular Nietzschean idea for a nefarious purpose. Right. In a way that I don't, I, I'm pretty confident he would never have signed off on himself. I mean, Nietzsche was, at least like the biography of him, he was not exactly a pleasant person. No. Right. But there's nothing in him that seemed like he was evil. Right. Right. Just kind of like socially awkward, probably had syphilis. And so I think the best interpretation of Nietzsche's thought experiments will even say like time is a flat circle eternal recurrence these are all i think he intended and i would also argue the only really good way to think about them is internally like for myself right right if time is a flat circle how do i live in such a way that's meaningful given that these things might come back again again and again happen again and again right I mean, obviously, the Nazis used his idea of the Ubermensch or the Superman to be in a social or racial sense, right? Which, even though Nietzsche wasn't always tactful about his nomenclature around the Jews, no part of reading Nietzsche, I get that sense from it. Right? No, they definitely co-opted yeah. a lot of the things he said. And I think it's interesting, and that could probably be why Reggie's quoting Nietzsche. is like, well, these evil people quote him, and I, and I, it's just, it's such an interesting philosophical and mental exercise to walk that tightrope of saying well no here's why you're wrong about him (laughs) right Mm -hmm. here's why the philosophy you're using is not quite correct because if you do take some of Nietzsche's ideas into a different realm like the objective world if time is a flat circle objectively not as a useful thought experiment for living well but as objectively then yeah there is no consequence for bad action no right no (laughs) so you're just doing it over and over yeah, yeah yeah and so I think that that's a really high level input into the show and i mean like we talked about last time there's so much explicitly philosophical stuff in this show way more than almost any other yeah and and they just throw in like random nietzsche quotes from your your weird degenerate pedophilic Mm. bad guy it's kind of interesting i want to talk about tuttle the preacher he's only in a couple of the episodes but he seemed to like he was a villain in the sense that he was more of a cover-upperer than an actor in the evil. Yeah. And so where does this place him in the blame hierarchy of like who we hold accountable? So it's not very well explained in the narrative. You kind of have to follow along and get the gist of it is that, uh, so this guy's Reverend Tuttle. I can't remember his name. His dad's name was Sam Tuttle. And Sam Tuttle had, I guess, a mistress and had a couple kids with her. And then those kids are the Childress kids and were also in the house with mm-hmm. the Tuttle kids. So really, the Reverend Tuttle recognized this kind of like cult-like behavior and motifs from the other kids who would have been like his half-siblings or even half-cousins maybe running around the house. Yeah, He didn't actually, it didn't seem like he partook, although maybe he did. We don't know. But it seemed more like he just kind of knew about it and didn't want any authorities to know about yeah. it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so... You know, where do you see those people in the... Um... I, I I think they're people who are covering up evil are just, just as responsible. Okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. If you're actively trying to hide truly heinous and horrible things, right. then you're... Well, yeah. I mean, it was in his safe that 
they found the, the video that rust found the video so presumably he saw it and didn't have the reaction marty did to it yeah so i mean that that's or, or he had other interests that writes you off yeah. right yeah that's fair and then it's implied that the actual cult members killed him well here's an example the video got like, stolen so jeffrey epstein right yeah. a lot of people covered up for him i right. i think they are guilty like, mm, i think that yeah. they're implicit in his many criminal activities by their silence right he said something that was interesting though i think it's worth a riff people should have a choice in education like anything else what do you think about this oh yeah sure sure yeah i agree okay so i don't think that's a terribly no but well in the context of the show he's talking about all the schools that they funded that would have that would have had a um i guess a creationist bend right to the science program which is always where the tension comes in i think because yeah i mean I, i i think i would probably tend towards the freedom part of it too in the choice of education but for me, the rub is like, well, if you're saying something that's not even just up for debate, but palpably false to children and not giving them the context, that's just making it harder for the society later in one sense. Like, is there any antidote for things that, or is there anything that's off the table to teach kids? Well, I think this is always a tension, right? Because mm. you're, it's security versus freedom, right? You're always going to be sacrificing even mental security, but... Do we trust the state to be the decider of this? Right. No, no, no. So that that ends the discussion for me. Okay. That's where it Fair. no longer is an interesting mm. topic, right? Yeah, it's, it's not like uh, the public schools are these paragons of deep learning. Well, and, exactly. And, and uh, I will lift up mine eyes. No, <laughs> and, or their curriculum is like particularly sure. unbiased. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just... Get, I, I think that uh, there is a inherent belief somehow that the state mm. is has the best interest of its citizens sure at okay so then and this is not a problem we'll solve here i just maybe want to bring it up to think about for talking about some other time but yeah like there's a part of me that would say okay well if we want quality education everything should be private but there's a lot of people who couldn't afford that that's the problem and th- this is a problem and it's people who can't afford it that can't afford it not for anything that they did wrong right so there's like a initial opportunity unfairness built in to like how you might even start a private school system for a nation right so unless (laughs) really the only solution to that is for the state to fund schools and be 100 percent committed to not being involved in any of the curriculum Right, <laughs> which is going to be really hard. Now, to what do. like would there ever be a government that would do that? Like, well, okay, a here's democratic one. Here's you know a billion dollars for your board of education for this year. Do whatever you want. We will give you zero <laughs> oversight. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, because like really, he's going to be held responsible for it. Well, I guess philosophically, the only way that that would ever work is that it would be if the constituents of the school, so the parents. Um, had enough of a good relationship with the teachers to trust them to do a good job. And the teachers got paid enough money to feel that kind of duty to the kids and to the parents. Yeah. Right? And then the funding would have to come from somewhere as well. So even more likely than a state to do that would just be some super rich billionaire. Yeah. Right? 
But even they couldn't even possibly cover a fraction of the cost of educating the general public. Oh, sure. Yeah. There's just too many people. So it's like finding committed educators, paying them enough money, and then kind of figuring out how to foster a culture of people holding each other accountable. Like this is actually how things work best in life. Like military units work best when they hold each other accountable. Yeah. When peers. So this is what I'm saying, I guess. The best form of excellence, I think, in a social sense, is competent peers and people you respect and admire holding each other culturally accountable, right? Right. It's not that I don't want to let down my boss. It's that I don't want to let down that other teacher who works as hard as I do and I admire. Yeah. Right? So, like, I think, I mean, education is a massive thing, and we're certainly not going to be solving it. But I think it's something like that. I think there's, I think leveraging cultural and peer respect is actually how to make it better so anyway (laughs) okay i guess we should talk a little bit about errol the uh actual villain yeah i didn't i was the most disappointing part of the oh okay how come well i just he seems so dumb and inbred and gross and you thought he was dumb I thought he could be dumb if he wanted to. I also found him a little bit kind of sketchy. And like he even says, well, his wife slash half-sister says to him, how was your walk? And he's like, I had a top-notch constitutional. Right. <laughs> so he's yeah. like kind of debonair about his approach. The truth is we don't learn a lot about him. No, almost right? nothing. Like really the only time he's on screen is um, at the beginning of the last episode. Like we see his house and how he's like has his dad tied up on a bed. Yeah. <laughs> right. And like dying, it reminded me a lot of that scene in Seven, the guy who was convicted of the sloth being the sloth crime and like yes. tied to a bed for a year. I yeah. thought that was what, very reminiscent Ugh. of that scene. Yeah. Yet clearly he's a true believer, right? Like we definitely get that weirdness out of him. Yeah. So yeah, I guess there's not much to say other than I loved. I loved, loved, loved that he made an appearance in the third episode. Yes. Rust had no, no idea. One, yeah, you because they were, again, following the wrong clue. Not, it wasn't the wrong clue. I mean, it was a good clue. And if they hadn't killed Reggie, they would have learned more about this Errol guy, right? Yeah. However, what great filmmaking or, you know, TV making, I guess. Yeah, to, to leave breadcrumbs along the way yeah. that you that people can pick up. And Rust even remembers him. Yes. He's like, I, I saw him on that tractor. He was sitting. I didn't see very well, but right. it was him. I had I was I was talking to him. It's like, oh, poor Rust. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I don't think there's a lot. The only other villain, and he's kind of a intricate villain. Well, not he's not smart intricate, but it's like very tangentially related to the plot, but it's important, is that uh, Gracie. The, the sheriff that yeah. they kind of strong arm into telling them stuff. He was a deputy that kind of was okay with the sheriff signing off on the fact that this young Marie Fontenot girl was with her dad when there's no way anyone knew that to be true. No. Right? So he was just cutting corners. Yeah. Well, and no, like not even, he knew that what the sheriff was saying was unverified. Right. But the sheriff was signing off on a verification of it. it. It could still be that maybe she was, but it hadn't been well investigated. He knew that and he went along with it anyway. Yeah. And his line was, it's a chain of command. This is how it all works. And my just little note is corruption via title. 
Yeah. This is why titles aren't enough. So I guess this is probably an element of human nature and human psychology, but it's like once you give something a name, it is that thing, (laughs) right? So if you're a sheriff, well, uh, I don't even know if I want to use a police example right now. If you're a mayor, let's say, the fact that you have the title of mayor for a a lot of people makes you unimpeachable in your ethics, right? Or the imagination it would take to have to combat that is too much for people. As opposed to like what we've talked about with David Copperfield, the the proper orientation in the world is to earn your title after you get it even more than before you got it. Yeah, right. that's the proper. To be a better leader post that. And Gracie in that moment should have stood up to the person with the title because he knew it was the right thing to do. Like he had a bad conscience about it. He wasn't happy about the fact that he knew that there was this little girl missing that the authorities were saying wasn't, right? Yeah. But he went along with it because his career kind of thing. And it's like, I feel like almost in miniature form, we face these kind of things a lot in life, you know? And maybe where it's we're going to happen even more. Where we're kind of, yeah, confronted by title. Well, I mean, I think there's a natural hierarchy that we are looking for kind mm-hmm. of it, uh, remember how you said earlier the battle between the conscious and the subconscious yeah well subconsciously i think we're kind of looking for our place in the hierarchy mm-hmm. and titles help us position ourselves in the world right. not just as a title but in relationship to a title sure and i think a big part of coming to self-awareness and coming to a kind of a higher order thinking about the world is mm-hmm. understanding that titles it's the emperor has no clothes yeah. metaphor. Whereas like I, I completely agree. I think the proper orientation in the world is to earn your title. Yeah. I agree. There was this one line from the major who was their boss in 95 and he's under pressure from the betters. So like Tuttle and Tuttle's cousin being the governor. And so like people that are way above him as a, top cop he's under pressure for them for political reasons because they want to figure out what these quote-unquote satanic activities are because you know in the 80s and 90s there was a bit of a moral panic across especially the southern united states like arkansas louisiana those parts of satanic activities right and uh, actually i think we've mentioned it before on the podcast there's this great movie called regression ethan hawk and emma watson about people who claimed who who confessed to, to satanic crimes that they actually never did right but they thought they did because of how powerfully people were telling them that they did it right so they started having false memories it's wow. like really fascinating actually and then how like emma watson plays this character who claims that she was abused by satanic activities but she never was but she was just but trying to just told, and and yeah. she convinced the people who she was saying did it, that they did it. And so they admitted to it, right. but they never did. Wow. Yeah, so like there was just kind of this moral panic at that time of satanic activity. So in 95, this would have been the case too. And it just like part of the, I think why the appeal of true detective exists for us is that true investigations are not on political timelines, right? Like this crime takes 17 years to solve. Yeah. To finish. Yeah. What political timeline is 17 years? nothing yeah (laughs) right especially not in the western world for sure yeah Yeah, and i think that that's worth thinking about (laughs) yeah agreed and beth the girl who is marty's second fling 
So the underage girl in 95, who he reconnects with in 02, because she works at a T-Mobile store, yeah. which is funny. So she's, you know, probably 22, 23 by 02. And they have an affair. And she had this line that I thought was interesting. God gave us these flaws. There's nothing wrong with the way he made us. Which is a different, like, that's very different than the idea of, like, original sin. Or, like, being ashamed of original sin. Well, it's kind of putting it on God. Right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is, like, there's something kind of logical about that. If you take <laughs> if it. You, if you go down that path, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it's kind of funny. Like, I still believe in it, this Beth girl. I still believe in God. But if he made me this way, where I'm attracted to you, a married man in his 40s, and you're attracted to me, young 22-year-old, and it's but it's, like, well this is still the way God made us. Right. Why would why would he also make rules that say, don't do this if this is the way he made us? I just thought that was an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like if you remove the kind of like the social impropriety and you remove the, the, the like a, emotional abuse of Maggie and all of this, there's something potentially wise about thinking that way about human desire, I think. Right. Like not being ashamed of your impulses in a sense, which is different than giving in to them. But part of why I actually like part of the reason why I was I'm very critical of a, of particular strains of Christianity is that they don't tell you to be ashamed of your behavior. The, the shame is of the actual feeling. Right. Which is not healthy, I don't think. So. No. And then the last character point i wanted to bring up is um i loved the contrast of the modern cops and i can't remember their names they're tricky names they're like papanaw and burrow or something right. like that or Guru or something but there's that awesome scene at the end of the seventh episode where they're driving through rural louisiana and they stop and talk to errol and he is starting to like soliloquize on how his family's lived there for years yeah. and he knows his all the way around and they just kind of cut him off and drive away and it seems to be like they miss the little details that Cole and Hart don't. Right. Right? There's no way Cole and Hart would have driven away there and not listened to what that guy had to say. No. Right? And I think that that's a fun little distinction of how wide they're the true detectives and these modern guys aren't. No. they're Right? Yeah. They're just company men, mm -hmm. as I think Marty calls them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just a great contrast of like you can't – it's like you can't really have an agenda – or a schedule or a timeline to solve a mystery. No. Right? You need to be vigilant in... In your observation. In the observation and the attributes, not to wherever you, you know. Yeah. So um, so that's all my character notes. Did you have any other character stuff or someone we didn't talk about that struck you? No. Okay. So the only other stuff I have is um, story-based. I love the intro credits. Just the yeah, Louisiana the, flavor, oh, the Cajun the flavor of the music. Yeah, it's, it's so, so good. <laughs> and I mean, we talked about how great the backdrop is of Louisiana in this show. but And they do it a lot more actually in season two. But in season one, there's and it's a hallmark of True Detective, these great distance shots. So like from a helicopter, right? How many great shots there are clearly from a helicopter of a car driving down a road in lonely Louisiana or mm -hmm. something like that. Or like an oil refinery in the background. I think it's incredible. It mimics well the loneliness you know that the main characters are feeling. Yeah. In in some of the and how detached they are from the things they're trying to find. I thought this was an incredibly well written story. Oh, probably yeah. Right? Yeah. The um 
and and so like the and the character development like the probably the writing the best writing is the care and then uh, amplified by the acting is the character development the um the example i would give is i guess it's probably the first episode but maybe the second where they add in the knowledge that this girl this marie because dora lang is the woman who was murdered which is the case they're trying to solve and then when they're canvassing this one town where she was staying the na- the neighbor guy talks about are you searching for that missing marie fontenot girl and so we're introduced to this girl's name. It comes up a few other times. And then it's not until the very last episode where we see what became of her. And so it's just like this minutia of detail in the plot that isn't ever accentuated, but it's what keeps it moving and satisfying when we get it, right? Yeah, and they weave timelines together really mm-hmm. well, oh, too. Yeah. Like It's probably one of the best examples of skipping around. <laughs> That's actually with... my very next note. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's like one of the best examples of, of kind of that as an art form, I yeah. think. Like how this happens over many different years, but we experience it. We don't experience this show chronologically. We experience it thematically through different things that are happening to the characters, but also in different year spans, yeah. right? So... We're getting 2012 Cole and 2012 Marty talking about 95 Cole and 95 Marty, yeah, which is awesome because they flavor it any way they want to. Although I guess if this was like a police conversation, it's weird how much detail they get into Marty's personal life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it makes for a better show. I thought the Yellow King and the Carcosa at the end was amazing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so cool. That was, again, I think I mentioned last time, my only critique of this show is I wanted more of the cult. Yeah. I wanted more of that. Understand what's going on. Yeah. Why is it Yeah, important? like what are yeah. the origins of this? Like, is it really a voodoo thing? Um, what are some of maybe their tenants? Why do they think it's okay to do this to children? Yeah, none of that is explained. It's it didn't true. need to be, I guess, but I wish it had been. Yeah. The detective's curse, paying attention to the wrong clues. I love that. Useful. <laughs> I love that, yeah. The, I think we mentioned last time, the, I, uh, the, uh, I called it this. So that long shot during the robbery scene is cinematography orgasm yeah it's it's great it's like when we talked about children of men yeah the movie yeah Yeah. just in that point that we made about how it's told so well through time i love it that the 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 conversations are spliced and the editing happens that the the modern cops are learning in the same way that the audience is learning Mm -hmm. which is awesome because it doesn't feel like exposition Right? No, that's feel, what's so great about it. Yeah. Right? Is there, yeah. It's like an actual, like, we're learning so much because these characters are having to talk about their experiences. They're not just doing it so we learn, right? Yeah. And I guess just the last little point is um, I really liked how the final confrontation between Marty and Rust and Errol, it was like kind of short. It wasn't as big, drawn out battle. Like, it was drawn out to find him. But when they actually started fighting, it was like, 15 seconds yeah not even and i really loved this because it it definitely had breaking bad motifs is how they both saved each other's lives yeah (laughs) right because errol stabs rust and he's about to either shoot i think he's about to shoot him or either bash his head in with a rock or something and then marty runs in and shoots errol like four times in the in the torso and it doesn't even seem to stop errol (laughs) yeah no and then he's about to shoot marty and then rust kills it's great but i don't like drawn out final battle scenes Right, because like, it, it like quick. Yeah, like it obviously would be quick. Yeah. They have guns and knives. Yeah. It's not going to be a long fight. No, no, it's very realistic. Yeah. So were the, those are just like the story oriented stuff I made notes on. Did you have any other story 
stuff that you thought were really I great. just love how maybe this era of television, this golden age, mm. was so committed to imagery and yes. to weaving. Yeah. Like there's the line where they're making fun of, or the pastor is making fun of these devil net things that are being made. Right. And then it pans over to the cross tied together by string. Because it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, you yeah. know people trusting in these like stupid stupid yeah, things icons. tied to, tied to <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. then there's a picture of a cross tied together in Russ's room very clever uh and there's a, a ton of that where they just leave that for you to be like oh mm. if you're a a person who's interested in imagery and depth and these kind of things mm. here it is and i just i think they did a great job with that and then i guess my la- my final thought would be to reiterate just how the twist of this whole story Mm -hmm. is the existential journey that both characters go on, but particularly Rust, in that Marty becomes less and less of a believer in the good in the world, Mm -hmm. and somehow Rust becomes more and more, Mm -hmm. and they meet in the middle and then seem to merge and then go on a different path together. Yeah, they both manage to overcome their own kind of unrealistic takes on existence yes exactly (laughs) and i think is i think that's (laughs) the coolest part is that it's not just being that like the the title is many faceted as any good title would be Mm -hmm. uh it's like goodwill hunting we've talked about that Mm -hmm. how there's multiple ways of interpreting that title Mm -hmm. in this case there's multiple ways of interpreting what true detective really means yeah uh, i love that because of all of the great things of the show, I guess if I had to put my finger on the best part for me, once we've gone through recording this and I've been able to think about it a bit, is how both Rust and Marty have their confidences in their own abilities that aren't completely wrong, but they use that to justify why they're kind of in some sense above something. And then their behavior, like any humans will, will show that they're actually not above that and they're right in the middle of it, just like everybody else. But then being able to, once they kind of come to terms with that, realize that they still have the power, it's still within them to go do something good in the world. Yeah. Right? And to not be destined by your own kind of miscalculations of your own ability. Yeah. And that they can like adjust to still go on and and be the bad men who are taking on the worst men kind of thing. So the bad men who are taking on the evil men. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like why they're so compelling yeah. as characters. I, I, I think it's a I think that you, you kind of captured it with the, the idea of or that we kind of captured it with the idea of bad men protecting the world from worse men. I think that's the core of the show. Mm-hmm. And the mystery is interesting, but it's really the two leads that make this show compelling. Yes. And as the sh- as a final note on like the show, I wonder like because of how smart it is, I wonder if there's got to be a correlation between the golden age of television and shows that treat their audience with a lot of respect for their intelligence. True. Right? Which these Fargo, do, yeah. this, The Wire, those all those shows, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, they're they're not pandering to some lowest common denominator viewer. No. They're making you work to follow what's happening, but it's not like it's impossible to do. No, agreed. So yeah, I love the show. It's a great I'm really show. glad we did it. It was really fun to watch again, actually. Yeah. It was uh I thought, oh man, I'm gonna watch it for the third time. Will I will I really still enjoy it again? But I did. I really did. I thought just honestly the iconography is amazing in yeah. the show. And that's a rare thing to appreciate a story so many times. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. May the force be with you. Indeed.